Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us, for all that you do to take care of us and provide for us, including the preservation and revelation of your word and thought process to us in the Bible. Father, thank you for the week that we've had. We pray that as we go back over those events that occurred during the week, we would learn from those areas where we let human viewpoint and Satan's thought process lead us. May that process be started today as we study your word, taking a look at the loving father and the prodigal son story and identifying a little bit more about how you operate towards us, your children. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the prodigal son, as it's normally known, is what we are calling the loving father, or we are calling that story the loving father. And it's a parable which creates a parallel for the purpose of reiterating a message. So Jesus is talking, and he's giving a spiritual message. Through a human narrative, and a narrative is a story. So if you string along a different set of facts with a story, you create a narrative. So there is a spiritual message that Jesus is creating. This is, in essence, an analogy. It says, this is like this. And it uses things that you can understand to create a comparison that hopefully builds a bridge in your thought process, in your what we call the inventory of ideas, which is the list of all the ideas of things you have in your head. And uh, that basically creates a parallel for you to understand better or in a different way what Jesus is trying to get at. Now, why didn't he just come out and say what he was trying to get at in this message, in this parable? Because he identified that there are those who are willing to hear and those who are not willing to hear. And parables were spoken to those who were willing to hear amongst everyone. So let's say that we've got seven of us in this room, and only three of us really want to hear what's going to be taught today. And then there's a here because, well, it's what I do on a Sunday. My parents drove me here. I have to be here. I'm not saying this is the case for any of you. It may be. I hope not. But that's all between you and God. So let's just say that we've got four that are not wanting to be here, not willing to listen, just kind of hoping to get through this so they can get to church and go watch the game after church. And we've got three that are here to learn and listen. The ones who are here to learn and listen will catch the message out of this parable because they have chosen to say, I'm going to pay attention and identify what's being said here. Now, parables are spoken to non-believers in general, but believers nowadays, us church-age believers, we can understand the spiritual nature of these parables, of these teachings. So let's take a look at this parable. Last week we dealt with some of the characters. We're going to add two into that and then go into the parallels that we have for our Christian way of life, and that's why it's part of this study. So the parable starts in Luke 15, 11 to 13. We'll just read through the story and get to our roles again. It says, And he said, Jesus speaking, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So the father divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when the father came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? 
I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now what a great story. If you imagine Jesus standing on the side of a mountain or perhaps in the boat facing an audience and telling this story, you go, huh, well that's a good story. Sounds nice. Son made a bad choice, came back to his father. Father still loved him after that. That would perhaps be the only thing you'd pick up about it. Is it just that it's a nice narrative, a nice story. But if you were listening to what's being said and focused on understanding everything in there, you'd catch a whole different story. That's why we've called it the loving father, because this is the example of how the father operates in response to believers, his children. Let's take a look at what we looked at last week with the father, or the characters represented by the parable. The last two on the bottom, the robe and the ring. I added those this morning. We didn't have room for the sandals. I've left it off, and it's going to be inconsequential at this point. But we identified and made a list of all the characters that this that these that this list on the left represented in a parallel in this parable. And rather than go through them again, I have actually put them up onto our PowerPoint for you. We identified that the father in the parable was God the Father, that the sons in the parable were believers in Christ, that the servants were obedient angels, and we could actually, having looked at it a little more thoroughly, we could actually add anyone who is obedient to God into that. Fellow, fellow believers who are obedient to God could be into that as well. The reason we left it as obedient angels is because it doesn't identify them as sons with the two sons that the father had. So this is definitely obedient angels. You could perhaps allow for it to be anyone who's obedient to God. The inheritance we identify was the Holy Spirit. The Father's land is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom in which God operates. The foreign land is Satan's world system. The foreign employer is the sin nature. It's what directs you and dictates your behavior when you're in the foreign land. The famine, we said, was spiritual depravity. Now that means that you are operating carnally. You're not operating spiritually. And because of that, you are depraved or you are lacking the ability to understand spiritual things. So you see things from a human perspective, you see a problem and you focus on the problem rather than the solution to the problem. Now the robe, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but the robe here is a parallel for spiritual operation, spiritual living. It's not spiritual life, it doesn't create life, but it's when the believer repents and confesses, he now goes back to spiritual operation. And the robe was, si- was symbolic of an individual living through the the adult life in Rome. And so the adult life of the believer is spiritual operation. Us operating in de- us operating dependent upon God's thought process, 
from the source of the Holy Spirit leading our human spirit, spiritual versus carnal. So the robe identified in the adoption process of those citizens of Rome, that they were adults and had all the rights and privileges as an adult. When the robe is put back on, the prodigal son, what's being identified is that he is back to living out his life as an adult in the family of the father. So it's spiritual operation. The ring. If you remember from our brief study on the Hoyathesium, the, the ring was important because as the adoption process took place, the ring identified that they had that the child who became a man had the ability to go and sell and buy at market. And the ring was what they would put down instead of what we would use today, like the debit card or a credit card. It was what they would mark or show when they purchased an item so that it proved who they were, where their money was going to come to finance the purchase. They would get the item, and then when the, the merchant would come around to collect, they would know where to go, and they'd have a little log, and they'd say, okay, this ring was used to buy uh, a three square yards of purple fabric. Okay, we're going to go to that family. We're going to go collect the debt. And that was the idea. So the ring was about using the family's resources. Now, the family had a lot of resources. You could do a lot of things. The family had limited resources. You couldn't do as much. We have the resources of God available to us when we operate spiritually, not to use how we want to use them. That's what James says. You ask for what's rightfully yours, but you ask amiss, and so you do not get it. You ask amiss because you want to consume it for yourself. That's where we have the view of God as a genie. God, I'd like a bunch of money. Can you give me a bunch of money? Well, God's not a genie. He has uh, resources available to him, money. Otherwise, anything he wants, he can use as a resource. But just because we ask for it doesn't mean we're going to get it. There are principles in play. So just because you have all the resources of God available to you when you're operating spiritually doesn't mean that you can demand them from God. They're rightfully yours to utilize, but only in the family's order, only in the way that the family says they're to be used. And that the family obviously is God's family. Now, the similar, sim simple example or analogy here. If you get your driver's license but do not have a vehicle for yourself yet, and your parents say, you can borrow the car, but when you borrow the car, you need to ask for it first. You need to make sure you fill up the gas tank to replace the fuel you used, and you need to make sure that you don't hit any other vehicles. Simple three rules, right? You have the car available to you at your disposal. Just ask first, fill up the fuel tank when you use it, and don't hit anything. Those are the, the rules in order to use the resource. Same kind of idea. We have the power of God available to us, but it has to be used according to the right channels, right protocols. We have all the resources of God available to us to do His will, but the problem is we want to go use it for our will sometimes. And that's where we stop because we break fellowship and those resources are not available to us in that way then. So the ring is symbolic or parallel to the divine resources of God. He has promised that he has made everything available to us in Christ pertaining to life and godliness. Everything that we need to accomplish his will, he has provided for us. We just have to allow him to lead us in, doing, in using those things and follow his guidelines and instructions in how to use those things. So the next thing we're going to take a look at, and this is new now, the next thing we're going to take a look at are the parallels that we find in scripture for each of those different, not every single one of those, but each of the different actions and um, some of the ideas in the parable. 
In Luke 15, 12, we have the son asking for his inheritance. Someone turn to Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In fact, we'll set this up in the following manner. If we can get one person on Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, another person on James 1, 13 to 15, another person on Ephesians 4, 30, Romans 1, 28, 32, and Hebrews 12, 6. Let's just go uh, left to right around the room. My left, not, yeah, actually all of our lefts, we're facing the same way. So Juju, if you'll do ele- Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, Reagan, James 1, 13 to 15, Jacob, Ephesians 4, 30, Cade, Romans 1, 28 to 32, Josh, Hebrews 12, 6, and Peterson, Galatians 3, 21. And when you all get there, we will start our examination of the inheritance of the Son and the believer's inheritance. still locating your verse that's all right let's take a look at the son's inheritance in Luke 15 12 and the believer's inheritance in Ephesians 1 13 to 14 when the son asked his father for his inheritance we identified as Jesus was speaking the culture was Roman and so this was referring to the Roman adoption right and privilege that when an adult son wanted a portion of his inheritance he could draw it on the spot he could take it on the spot We are given, as a believer in Christ, an inheritance that we get right away. We don't even have to ask for it. It's automatically given to us, and it's a portion of what we'll get to come. Go ahead and read Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. Alright, the first identification there is you believed. After that, you were sealed. Does anyone know what we were sealed by? Say it in that verse. The Holy Spirit is what sealed us. We were sealed by the Holy Spirit. And what does it say, the earnest part? The last portion about the earnest Can you read the whole phrase for me? All right, as a believer, you have given been given an inheritance, which is eternal life, through being bought back, that's redemption, from slavery or slave market. So... Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 says, you believe first, you are sealed next, and the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, the believer's inheritance. The inheritance is eternal life. The Holy Spirit is the earnest. Now, this is a fancy word. Are you using the New King James or King James? Okay. The earnest is a fancy word that means guarantee of more to come. We know it to be a down payment, 
which secures an object or an item with the promise to pay the final total later. If you go to a car lot, and have ever been in a car lot with your parents, perhaps they bought a car right off the lot, or of a used car lot either, the salesman comes out, oftentimes they can be pushy, oftentimes they can try and get your parents into an idea or a car they don't really want to be in, whatever. But what ultimately happens is if there's a vehicle that your parents like and the salesman has available to them, they say, okay, let's negotiate the price. They go through negotiations back and forth, back and forth, and the salesman at some point will ask, well, what's your down payment? How are you going to guarantee that you'll pay this total bill? So the down payment is, the idea for it is that if you give $5,000 up front, you are now invested in this vehicle and you will want to pay it off. Otherwise, you're just going to throw away your $5,000 or whatever the down payment may be. So it's a promise that you will obey the plan of payment to pay off this vehicle, but it's also what guarantees that you get it on the spot. If you don't have a down payment, you got a massive loan, okay? So you always want to have a down payment at the least. And nowadays you can get a car without a down payment, but they'll want some sort of guarantee that you will pay off your bill. And if you don't pay off that bill, having given a down payment, they'll keep your down payment and take off or take the car back. So the down payment the earnest is a guarantee that God says, you have believed in Christ, you will have eternal life, you will not go to the lake of fire for eternity. That's our promise. And God, although he is righteous and does not lie, and is love, and so he will not deceive us, gives us a down payment that says, this is the proof that what I've said is true, that you will have eternal life in the future, and that down payment is the Holy Spirit. So the believer's inheritance is the Holy Spirit and the down payment on it that we get instantly is him operating and indwelling us. Sorry, the believer's inheritance is eternal life. The down payment for eternal life is the Holy Spirit. Don't let me mix that up. I have a tendency to try to do that. So the inheritance of the believer is eternal life. The down payment that guarantees you will get that eternal life is the Holy Spirit who indwells you. Now, we said that the son departed in Luke 15 to 13, and there is similarly a believer's ability to depart with his inheritance. Take a look at James 1, 13 to 15. Reagan, could you read that for us, please? Yes, please. Can you read 14 for me again, please? Okay.
we start with the principle, and this really doesn't have so much of a parallel to our parable. We start with the principle of God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt. Now, I've left that in there because it tells us a little bit more about who God is. What happens when the believer departs with his inheritance? The believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. In fact, Paul says, do you not know that the Holy Spirit, that your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit? The believer takes the down payment of his inheritance, the Holy Spirit, and he sees something shiny in a trap. His lust is excited, gets his attention, he wants it, and instead of staying where the Father has provided everything he needs, he says, I'm going to go, I'm going to take this thing outside of what inheritance I have, spiritual life, I'm going to take from the carnal world because I desire this thing. And what happens? Sin results. As a result of sin, the believer is incapable of producing spiritual works under the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. So the departure of the believer is that he leaves aside spiritual life, which we have immediately and culminates with eternal life at the end of the ages. He ignores the Holy Spirit, squanders now, in Ephesians 4.30, we'll get to that verse in just a second, squanders what, in, what down payment he's been given, the Holy Spirit, Instead of using the Holy Spirit, he wastes the Holy Spirit by ignoring the Holy Spirit. He acts as if there's no Holy Spirit indwelling him. Which is why Paul comes out and says, do you not know that your body is a temple, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? Because we can operate as if the Holy Spirit doesn't exist within us. Both in choosing to purposefully do things that God says are wrong and we know are wrong, and in what I call passively choosing to do things that we know are wrong. This one is a little different, a little harder to see, but the idea is that instead of having a choice to make a right choice or wrong choice, you choose the wrong thing. That's the active way. You wake up, and instead of forcing yourself to say, okay, I need to walk in fellowship with God today. Is there sin in my life? Just not being active in starting the process of being of walking with God every day. You just wake up, and well, okay, I've got to go take a shower and go do these things, and just kind of ignoring the fact that you have a relationship with God. Not because you're trying to hide from him, but just because your first thought was, oh, I'm late, I've got to go do this. Or, okay, I've got these things to do today, I've got to start doing them. So the believer's departure is when the believer departs from the kingdom of God, spiritual operation as a child and ambassador of God, and leaves to go operate in the world. This takes place through sin and through the temptation process. It's when we choose to ignore what God has provided for us and set up for us, to take for ourselves and make for ourselves what we want. We do that by following our lust in pride, sensuality, or materialism. The result is what's called temporal spiritual death, which refers to the believer's inability to produce spiritual fruit. We cannot produce spiritual fruit outside of the Father's land. We have to be operating in His kingdom by His ways in order to produce spiritual fruit. You cannot be both carnal and spiritual at the same time. Likewise, you cannot produce spiritual fruit and carnal fruit at the same time. You are either carnal or spiritual. So the believer's inheritance is eternal life. The down payment of that is the Holy Spirit. The believer departs, takes with him the Holy Spirit who indwells him. And we're going to look at the squandering of that from Ephesians 4.30 right now. Go ahead and read Ephesians 4.30 for me, please. 
Okay, we've got that phrase again, sealed redemption from verses 13 to 14 of Ephesians. It says, grieve not the Holy Spirit. There are a couple of references to the human's actions toward the Holy Spirit. One is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The second is quenching the Holy Spirit. And the third is grieving the Holy Spirit. These are our four negative actions that we can as humans give towards the Holy Spirit. There are positive actions such as obeying, following the Holy Spirit that are not part of this. So these are all referring to carnal things. Now blaspheming the Spirit is rejection. of the Spirit's, Holy Spirit that is, conviction of sin, and need of a Messiah, or a Savior. Specifically, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejection of the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin and recognition of your of the Holy Spirit's statement that you need a Savior who is Jesus Christ. Who quit or bl blasphemes the Holy Spirit? We have two types of people in the world, believers and unbelievers. 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 Believers cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit according to how Scripture identifies it. Why? Because they've already accepted the fact that they're a sinner. They've already accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is talking only about and specifically about when the gospel message is presented to a group of people and those in the group hear the message, recognize the Holy Spirit's convicted saying, yes, you're a sinner, and they go, no, I'm not. I reject that statement. Or perhaps they accept that they're a sinner and, and the Holy Spirit instructs them and says, you need Jesus Christ to be your Savior. And they go, no, I don't. I will find another way. Both things are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What why it's called blaspheming is because when you reject what the Spirit's doing in that gospel presentation, you are impugning his character. You are saying that he is not truthful. You're saying that he is lying. If he says that you're a sinner and you say, no, I'm not, then you're saying the Holy Spirit's lying. And that is blasphemous because the Holy Spirit cannot lie because he is God. And so you are blaspheming. You are saying, you, are the, you Holy Spirit, are a liar. I know what's right. So this is unbelievers who reject the Spirit's conviction of their sin and consequent need of the, a Savior, Jesus Christ. Believers cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit. should be comforting when we actually come across that verse later in, in your readings of Scripture and it identifies that those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit will not have eternal life. Pretty simple. They haven't accepted Christ. They're not going to have eternal life. They reject the Holy Spirit's work of convicting them and identifying to them Jesus as the Messiah, and they will not have eternal life because the only way to have eternal life to get to the Father is through Jesus Christ. You have to accept your need for a, a Savior by accepting your sinful state. If you do that, you if you don't do that, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You identify He's a liar, 
and you impugn his character, which means you make false claims about his character. So that one's strictly unbelievers. The next two are believers. In fact, strictly believers. Quenching the Holy Spirit means stopping the Holy Spirit's leadership. The Holy Spirit is leading you. You are in fellowship. You are following him. And he says, go here and do this. And you say, I don't know if I want to. And he says, I've told you to do something. You need to do it. And you go, you know what? I'm not going to do that right now. I'll do it a little bit later. What have you just done? You've just stopped what the Holy Spirit was trying to do. You've quenched the fire, if you will, that is trying to build. You've stopped momentum. You've stopped obeying God. You have left fellowship with him. Holy Spirit says, do this. You say, no, I'm going to go ahead and do this. Maybe I'll get back, get back to that later. What have you done? You've disobeyed God. You've stopped leading. You started leading yourself. Or you stopped following. You started leading yourself. Holy Spirit's trying to accomplish a work, and you have kept that from happening. So this is for believers who say, nope, I'm going to do this instead. Holy Spirit's leading you, and you stop following him. That's quenching him. What you're doing is stopping him from working in your life to do what he's trying to do. That then, if it's not dealt with immediately, leads to this part. Grieving the Holy Spirit, operating while ignoring the Holy Spirit. This is ignoring his conviction now that you're out of fellowship. It's really and or. And Operating as if he is not indwelling you. So the first one is unbelievers only. Those who have accepted Christ as their Savior cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit because they've already accepted their state of sinfulness and Jesus as the Messiah. Believers at that point can quench, they can stop the Holy Spirit's work, what he's trying to accomplish in their life, and as a result of that, they then can grieve the Holy Spirit, which is basically operating this life as if you don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. We, did, we can do that so easily. Forget that the Holy Spirit lives within us, just go about all the things we're doing in our day, things we want to do, things we have to do, school and whatnot, and just ignore the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells us and is able to lead and guide us. That's the squandering of the down payment of our inheritance. We are ignoring what we have available to us, and we are wasting it away. And the Holy Spirit doesn't decay. That's not what I'm getting at. But if you look at the, the step two and step three on that, or number two and number three on that, what happens? You're following the Holy Spirit, and you stop it. You stop following the Holy Spirit. What happens then? The Holy Spirit gets less and less influential in your life, and you get more and more calloused to what the Holy Spirit's trying to do to the point that you stop remembering that you are a believer in God. As a result, you have been given the Holy Spirit indwelling you who is there to lead you, to help you in doing God's will. And you start operating on your own. So you stop being aware of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life and in you, and you start being aware of your own thought process more and more. It's a shift. It's a decay 
of your inheritance of spiritual life by not letting the Holy Spirit lead you. So the believer's squandering is the quenching work of the Holy Spirit and then the grieving of the Holy Spirit where the believer now goes and operates in a foreign land, Satan company's world, without remembering or allowing the Holy Spirit to lead. This results in the believer's impoverishment, which we will look at next week. There are questions on what we've presented today.